Good to see everybody today. Y'all look awful pretty this morning. Can you say amen this morning? Amen. Good to see everybody this morning. Grateful that you're here. Grateful that you're uh, always excited about coming together and worshiping the Lord here at Hillcrest. And those of you that are with us online, we appreciate your time this morning as well. Thank you for tuning in uh, to this worship service here at 930 on indeed a very chilly winter's morn here in Pensacola, Florida, but feels great inside, and we're delighted to be able to open the Word of God this morning to hear from the Lord, from His eternal Word, by His Spirit, that we may not only grow in our minds theologically, but that we may grow in our obedience to Jesus Christ and in our influence to our community and to our world, because the time is short and Jesus is coming. Amen. Our Bibles are open to Matthew chapter number 3 this morning. If you need a copy of God's Word, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. And you'll find our text this morning on page 758, 758, Matthew chapter 3. And in just a moment, we'll read a few of these opening verses of this very familiar passage. Have you all ever gotten into debates or discussions with your friends or your family or colleagues about who in a particular given discipline was the greatest of all time. Man, those are the kind of things we like to chew about in all kinds of different arenas. When I think about the greatest of all time, immediately my mind thinks of Muhammad Ali, who was very proud to claim to be the greatest, not only the greatest, but the prettiest who ever lived, right? Well, we might debate about that, who was the greatest boxer, heavyweight boxer who ever lived. Uh, there are some times when you think about a given discipline and the greatest of all time is obvious, right? Like women's tennis. It's Serena Williams. And there's not even another who even comes in the same area code as Serena Williams. And so sometimes there's an obvious standout. And in other disciplines, it can be a bit more tricky, you ask somebody who was the greatest president of the United States, most historians would say it's either Washington or Lincoln. And in almost every poll of the great historians throughout the years, Washington or Lincoln have been one or two respectively and justifiably so, but it's very difficult even to land on one particular. Uh, who was the greatest business leader of all time? Well, that'd be difficult. Is it John D. Rockefeller, Standard Oil? Is it Andrew Carnegie from Pittsburgh Steel? Or maybe Bill Gates, Microsoft, Jeff Bezos from Amazon? I mean, you, you could be, any number of business leaders could make a case for being the greatest of all time. What about the greatest baseball player of all time? Baseball is my sport. And that's very, very difficult because of so many who have graced baseball fields throughout the history over 100 plus years. All I know is this, if I'm picking a team myself, the first player that I'm picking is Willie Mays. Amen. I think Willie Mays is the greatest all-around baseball player who has ever played the game. But don't you know that there are many people who would look at me and say, not so fast, right? So it's very difficult to pick the greatest of all time in just about any discipline. Um, but when it comes to people in general, here's what's ironic. When it comes to all the human beings who've ever populated the planet Earth, 
I can tell you without a doubt who the greatest man who ever lived was. I can tell you that. We can argue about all these other ones, but there is no argument about who the greatest man who ever lived was because he's identified here in the pages of God's Word, and he's identified by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And of course, I'm taking Jesus out the picture because he's like God in the flesh, right? I'm talking about everybody else but him. But here's what Jesus said. Astonishing words in Matthew 11 and verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, when you have a statement like that, in the eternal word of God made by none other, than the Lord Jesus Christ, I would say that this is a man that we ought to know something about. Would you not agree? And that being the case, our friend Matthew surely obliges us here as we turn the page to chapter 3 of his gospel. Let's look together at how John is presented here in the first few verses of Matthew chapter 3. Our text will be all 12 verses. We'll read about half that just to get us started this morning. Let's stand together as we honor and pay homage to the eternal and authoritative Word of God this morning. This is the Word of God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. I'm not sure why they call him the Baptist. I've never known a Baptist that would get by on that. Nevertheless, I digress, verse 5, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is the word of God, and all God's people said, amen. Father, uh, we thank you for the word of God, and we thank you for men like John the Baptist, from whom we have much to learn. And I pray, Father, that as we work our way through this important biographical passage of Scripture, important not only from a biographical perspective, but from a theological perspective as well, that your Holy Spirit would be the master teacher today. Hide us behind the cross that we may see nothing but Christ crucified, buried, and risen, and then equip us that we might serve him correctly in terms of how we believe, how we live, and how we obey. May we make much of Jesus this morning. For his sake we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. <clears throat> what I'd like to do for a few minutes this morning is to paint you a picture. I'm not the greatest artist in the world, so I'm going to try to do it verbally. But I'm going to try to paint a portrait of the world's greatest man, as Matthew presents him here today, and he does so in three dimensions, I want you to notice, first of all, with me, John's personality. That's the first thing that kind of jumps off the page as we try to identify the man whom Jesus said was the greatest. 
And John's personality, if I could define it down to a word, would be what we would call quirky. He's a quirky personality. So he's an unusual person for Jesus to identify as being the greatest. That's maybe the most obvious part of his character. Matthew reminds us here in verse 4 that John was a sight to behold. He wore a garment of camel's hair with a leather belt tied around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. I heard John described many years ago as a one-man odd squad for God. Amen. And when we think about John, read about John, we uh, think of a man who conjured up images of the prophet Elijah. In fact, there were a lot of people who thought John was a reincarnated version of Elijah. And they thought that because John and his ministry were really set up by the conclusion of the Old Testament. Several months ago, year before last or so, we did a series from this pulpit from the last book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi. And the last statement in the book of Malachi has to do with a man who would come in the likeness of the prophet Elijah. That's how the Old Testament ends. There's going to be an Elijah-type figure that comes. And notice exactly what it says here in the book of Malachi, chapter 4 and verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the degree of utter destruction. In other words, God says through the prophet, I'm coming in judgment. And because I'm coming in judgment, the most important thing that humanity can be is ready. They need to be prepared in order to meet the Lord because society is broken. People are broken. Children have turned away from fathers. I know that never the case in this culture that we live in today, right? Disobedience abounds. Well, man, I mean, 400 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet was talking about that. Disobedience at home, disobedience in the larger world, society itself. And God says, I'm coming, but I want people to be ready for me when I come. And so I'm going to, in the last days, send you the prophet Elijah before that day. For what purpose? To turn the hearts of people away from themselves, away from the flesh, and back to God. And with that statement right there, basically, in the fourth chapter of Malachi, everything goes dark for four centuries. For 400 years, there is silence until we turn the page in the construction of our Bibles from Malachi to Matthew, and all of a sudden we find that Elijah that... Malachi was talking about bursting forth in the wilderness of Judah. He shows up and he begins to preach a message that's very convicting. He begins to convict people with his manner and he begins to convict people with his preaching. And the way that he convicted people with his manner was simply by his appearance, by his comport, by the way he presents himself. This was a preacher 
who didn't have to worry about ever making the cover of GQ magazine, right? I mean, he wears not the clothes like I wear, right? I get tickled through the years. I've had people kind of tickle my ribs and say, well, one of these days you're going to start dressing like a preacher, which of course always means necktie, you know, amen or oh me. It's Florida and not today, but most of the time it's 140 degree. I ain't wearing no necktie. At least not very often. Sometimes I will, and you'll love it when I do. <laughs> and I often say, oh, you want me to dress like a preacher? Let me show you John the Baptist right here. I'll show you how to dress like a preacher. Amen. In the Judean wilderness, in that hot desert, he comes as an ascetic, snubbing his, turning his nose at the greed and the materialism of the culture of his day. I often wondered what John the Baptist, what in the world he would do if God called him to come in the 21st century. I mean, if he came sticking his nose up at the greed and the materialism of the first century, how in the world would he come today? But that's what he does. And he shows it by how he appears. A coat of camel hair in the hot, dusty desert. Are you kidding me? And then we're told he doesn't even wear it loose. He binds it together with a leather belt. And when it comes time to eat, no. He doesn't do like the well-to-do rabbis did in Jerusalem who got their corner table at the Jerusalem Athletic Club, dined on prime rib and filet mignon and lobster tail. No, he didn't do that. He feasted out in the desert on a diet of locust and wild honey. He's an ascetic, hated the greed and materialism of his day and demonstrates it with the way that he lived. But here's the thing. John really, even though he did in fact draw attention to himself, he did that for a purpose. He wasn't primarily motivated to draw attention to himself, but you have to draw attention in order to get people to listen to the message that you've got to preach. But more important to John than drawing attention to himself was, was drawing attention rather to the message that he preached. That was most important to him. And that is what's most important about him. It's not his appearance, but it's, a, it's his message, which was a message that focused not on himself, but on a coming king, a king who was bringing with him a coming kingdom. And so it was the message that mattered. John's appearance mattered because he was trying to capture the attention of the rank and file of his day who needed their hearts turned back to God before the coming of God. And that's why he was as he was, and it's why he preached the message that he preached. And speaking of that, we notice secondly, not only John's personality, but more to the point, where I want to spend most of my time this morning is to focus on John's preaching. Because that's the most important thing about the man. John was a man of action, and the main thing that he did was preach. He was, as Matthew says here, in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, this becomes the sixth Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in the first three chapters of Matthew. Remember, do you not? 
that Matthew is a Jew writing primarily to a first century Jewish audience in an attempt to show them that the Messiah that they have been looking for has already come, and he came in the form of Jesus Christ, born of a lowly manger, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and about to come on the scene. But he's preceded by John, and Matthew describes him as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. His principal role, as the prophet Isaiah said, was to lift up his voice and prepare people to meet their God. And if preaching was his primary ministry role, and it was, the primary subject of his preaching What did he preach about more than anything else? Repentance. That's right. Repent. Write it down in your notes. John's message was a message that centered on repenting from sin. The Bible says John went into all the region around the Jordan, verse 3, proclaiming a baptism of what? Say it out loud. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, both Matthew and Mark uh, summarize the early preaching of both John and Jesus with the same phrase. It's in verse 4 here, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a summary statement of the preaching of John. And then as we turn the page and we find Jesus coming on the scene, we find Matthew summarizes the preaching of Jesus with the same word, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Both John and Jesus preached messages that centered on this critical concept as it relates to salvation, which is the concept of repentance. It's an important biblical word. Although many people don't like to talk about it, many churches don't even emphasize it anymore. Many preachers won't preach about repentance because they think it's too hostile, too alienating, too potentially offensive. Well, you've got a real problem If the first word out of the mouth of the Son of God when he came preaching was repent, and the first word out of the greatest man who ever lived according to Jesus was repent, and you call yourself a preacher and not preaching repentance, something is wrong in the city of bedrock. It's not right. It's one of the most beautiful biblical words because it's a word of grace. It's a word that reminds us we've got a chance. It's a word that reminds us we can turn from our sinful condition. We can be healed in our brokenness. It's a word that reminds us that God loves us enough to make a way back to himself. The word repent is a word that means to turn. We've talked about this many times through the years. Um, And I'm sure you remember every single one of them, amen? But it's like you're going down the road, you're going the wrong way, you realize you're going the wrong way, you become convicted about going the wrong way, you want to get to the right way, but you can't get there unless you what? You got to turn around. That's repentance. It's a change of mind leading to a change of heart, leading to a change of direction, and that change of direction always results with a turnaround. To turn, that's what the word repent means. And when it comes to God saving anybody, You and I have to first turn from our sin in order for God to save us. Repentance, are y'all with me? Say amen. Amen. Repentance is the first step of salvation. There's no salvation without repentance. Did y'all hear me say amen? You cannot be saved. You cannot know God. You cannot become a child of God 
unless and until you tur first turn from your sin, repent of your sin. I'm not talking about feeling sorry for it. Godly sorrow, the Bible says, leads to repentance, but godly sorrow is not repentance. Repentance is much more active than feelings of remorse. And so repentance is the first step of salvation, and it is non-negotiable. If you view Christianity as a highway, we sometimes call Christianity a Christian journey, Christian walk, you know. So we've got this picture of our life as followers of the Lord going down this highway of life. And Jesus describes it that way in Matthew 7. It is Christianity is a narrow way, right? A narrow way that leads to life. Well, if Christianity is this highway, this narrow highway, the on-ramp to the highway is repentance. That's the best way to think about it. If you're going to get on the highway that leads to eternal life, you have to enter the highway via an on-ramp, and the on-ramp to the highway of salvation is repentance, and there is no other on-ramp. It's the only on-ramp because there's a problem, and you know it. It's sin. We have this impediment to a right relationship with God. It's called sin, and sin leads to what? Judgment. And we've already seen it in the last statement of the Old Testament. Judgment is coming. The king is coming, and the king is going to bring judgment with him. And in just a minute, we'll see how John the Baptist alludes to that in the life of Jesus. So judgment is coming, and judgment comes because of the presence of sin. And because sin represents this great impediment between us and God, if you're going to have eternal life, you have to be forgiven of sin. And eternal life requires that you turn from it in order to be forgiven. You have to recognize it. You have to admit your sinful condition. And then you have to turn from it. That's dealing with your sin. You've often heard people say, you just need to deal with it. Well, that's what God says to every one of us. You're a sinner, and you need to deal with it. And the way you deal with it is by repudiating it, turning away from it. Notice the preaching of Peter in the third chapter of Acts, Acts 3, 19. The first word out of Peter's mouth is what? Repent. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of what? Refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You want to be spiritually refreshed? You want the presence of God in your life? Repent and turn away from sin. That's the prescription right there. I could preach a whole message on that one verse from Acts 3, 19 and 20. That's actually two verses, but I'm a preacher, not a mathematician. <laughs> but I could preach a whole message just on that statement right there. Oh, I just want the presence of the Lord in my, well, repent. Turn away from sin. This was John's message in a heartbeat. And again, a lot of people steer clear of this, but it's the first word out of John's mouth, and it becomes the first word out of Jesus' mouth from a ministry point of view, from a preaching point of view. And I want you to get this. I'm not sure y'all still with me. Say amen. It didn't alienate people. Maybe it did some, but talk to me this morning I mean, I'm the preacher. You talk to me. Were John the Baptist crowds puny or were they massive? Come on now. People didn't find this alienating. They, they were, you know what? The thing that I found is people really respect you if you just tell them the truth. Just tell them the truth. 
Speak truth to them. Don't coddle. I mean, you got to do it in a loving way. There's a right way to speak truth and there's a right way. Don't, don't speak truth with a club in your hand. Speak it while you're embracing somebody in love. But it didn't alienate people. It attracted people by the hundreds. Look at verse 5 here in our text. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. I mean, that's massive response. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. What? Say it out loud. <laughs> Confessing their sins. Did John's preaching get results? You bet it did. Why? Because it was faith. he was faithful to his calling. He preached the word. So John not only drew a crowd, he got results. He had a fruitful ministry that led droves of people to repentance and faith. And you know why? You know why? Because he was real. He was real. He didn't put on airs. What you saw was what you got. I mean, which would you rather have? Would you rather have a pastor of your church who had 14 degrees after his name and could speak with lofty words that you had to go out and look up all the time? Or would you rather have a guy that you knew, this guy's the real deal. This guy lives it. This guy backs it up. This guy connects with me. He doesn't try to go over my head. He tries to speak directly into my life. That's the way John was. And the part of the reason that he got results is, A, was because he was truthful to the Word of God, and B, because he was himself. He was real. He was authentic. He didn't try to be another preacher. He didn't. I tell this to young guys in the ministry all the time. Don't try to be Adrian Rogers. God didn't create you. God created Adrian Rogers to be Adrian Rogers. God created Charles Stanley to be Charles Stanley. God created Ted Trailer to be Ted Trailer. God created you to be you. And you need to be you to that flock that God has given to you. Don't try to be somebody else. It won't work. People are smart. They see right through that. Be yourself. And, and John was. He was a man of authenticity, and he was a man of integrity. He preached the truth of God with power and with authority and with consistency. And that, coupled with his authenticity, gave him a hearing with people who were hungry for spiritual truth. And his message was a universal message. Most of the people that came to John were Jews like John, but they probably weren't all Jews. It was a universal message that was for everyone, Jew or Gentile. And it was a universal message that focused, one, on a universal problem, which is what? Sin. It was a universal message that focused on a universal need. If we're broken by sin, and that's our universal problem, then second, we have a universal need, and our universal need is forgiveness. Forgiveness is your great, and let, let me just say, again, I'm not sure y'all are tracking with me. Would you say amen if you're listening to me? Your greatest need is not a new house. It's not a BMW, Mercedes. It's not a new van. It's not a new wardrobe. It's not that cruise down the Italian peninsula. Your greatest need is the need to be forgiven of your sin. That's the greatest need of any human's life. And you can't do anything to bring it about. All that you can do is respond 
to God's word and to what God has done in and through the person of Jesus Christ to meet that universal need, which is forgiveness, by repenting of your sin. And then there is a universal solution, which is Jesus Christ. And John certainly points to him, as we're going to see here in just a minute. So it's a universal message that points out a universal need, which is sin, that points to a universal uh, or a universal problem, which is sin, that points to a universal need, which is for, uh, repentance and forgiveness, and a universal solution, which is the grace of God in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. People still need to know that today. I mean, it's what Pensacola, Florida needs to hear more than anything else. It's what the state of Florida needs. The whole world is moving to Florida. And, and people, they're bringing all the baggage with them. Amen. And people need the Lord. And we've got to be the ones to tell them that. This is, in a very real sense, why we all need to be like John. He demonstrates what's now out of vogue, but we need to bring it back, what's called confrontational evangelism. The church has lost it, and that's by and large why many, if not most, churches are anemic today because we don't do anything but play a game of spiritual charades with people. We try to live a good example. The Lord never asks you to live to be a good example. He asks you to obey Him in every respect, which includes living a good life, but that's not how you influence people with the gospel. You can't play a game of spiritual charades with people and just hope somehow it rubs off on them or somehow that they just get it. They're not going to get it because lost people can do good things. They have to be told. They have to be told that sin is a problem and they have to be told that the only way out is to recognize it and to embrace God's solution, not their own solution. Their own solution is self-concocted, and it won't work. And they have to be told that the solution is Christ crucified. That's why John was the greatest man in the world. He was confrontational, but he did it in an attractive way. He didn't beat people over the head with the message of the gospel. He was attractively confrontational. And the New Testament writers speak often of our needing to be exactly that way. Speak the truth how? In, in love. That's right. Which is attractive, confrontational evangelism. People have to be told that. And we all can, can do better, including me, in terms of being intentional about relating the gospel with people. And then once they've done that, they have to be told that the next step is to be baptized in water, which is another thing that we see in the life of John. You have to recognize your need, turn from your sin, embrace God's solution, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then once that's happened, you express it publicly by being baptized in water as a sign and a testimony of your faith. Now, I don't have time to do a theology of baptism. We're going to do that next week. I'll talk more about ne uh, baptism next Sunday when we look at the baptism of Jesus. But those who were quick to repent of their sin based on the preaching they heard from John 
got in the water with John. And they were baptized as a public visible sign that their hearts had been purified, that their lives had been changed. Baptism was a public visible demonstration of their active repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And it was the most distinct aspect of John's ministry. For crying out loud, we call him the Baptist for a reason. And as we've already learned, it wasn't because of his diet, right? It was because he actually baptized people. And it was the most distinct aspect of his ministry. Communicating in a public way that God, through repentance and faith, not by the water, but through repentance and faith, had washed away their sins. But not everybody came to hear John was sincere about that. Most people were. Droves. Scores of people. But then there were the skeptics. And there are always skeptics. I mean, when you talk to people about the Lord, you're going to find skeptics. And you just need to be okay with the skeptics. Love them anyway. Don't turn and walk away from them. Don't thub your nose at them. Love them anyway. But just expect it. You're going to be told no probably more than you'll be told yes. And there were skeptics with John. Language gets pretty direct here beginning in verse number 7 of our text. Look at it. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. I'd say that's a little confrontational. Who warned you? But again, these, these, these were the phony balonies. You know, he, 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 didn't, he, didn't, he didn't use this kind of language with the sincere. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's John the Baptist's allusion to judgment that's coming right there. There were some listeners who were there for the show, the evaluators, the critics, interested in hearing what the man was saying, interested in watching the response of the crowd, but not interested enough in the message to take it seriously as it related to them. John says they're like snakes trying to flee a fire. They wanted to avoid the fire, but they didn't want their slimy nature to be changed. There are a lot of people like that today. That's a stark reality. There are a lot of people like that today in churches. They want enough of God to make them think that they're going to escape these fires of judgment, but just enough of God to get out of the fire. They don't want enough of Jesus to have to admit they need to fully surrender to Jesus. But John reminds these religious leaders, privilege is nothing when it comes to salvation. Just because you call yourself a Jew, he says to them, doesn't mean that when it comes time to stand in the presence of the Lord, you're going to find yourself right with God. You can't say we have Abraham as our father and think that that's all you've got to have. And can I say this morning, at the, at the risk of making everybody mad, you, neither can you say, well, I'm a Christian, 
and expect that to do it. Parroting a prayer never saved anybody without repentance and faith. Prayers are important. You have to make confessional prayer in order to be saved. I believe that. But I also believe that many people parrot a prayer and there's no real repentance in their heart. So you won't be able to, you know, put it in our context. You won't be able to get to the court of God one day and say, well, I was a Christian. My name was on a church roll. Because to a lot of those people, they'll hear, depart from me. I never, what? I, I never knew you. That was true for these religious leaders then. It's true for a lot of cultural believers today. Salvation requires a, a phrase that I've used for years, obvious repentance. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, calls it the obedience of faith. Obvious repentance. In other words, when a person repents of sin, there are some obvious, demonstrable, tangible signs that that person has repented of their sins. This is why John looks at these religious leaders and basically calls them out as false believers when he tells them in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, quit talking about repentance and demonstrate that it's really real in your life because there's no obvious demonstration of repentance. Repentance bears fruit. It's always active, always observable. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. We're not going to get that this side of heaven ever. But when a person is genuinely saved, there's always within the heart of that person, at the very least, a desire to serve God with every part of their life. Where there is this change of desire, and I believe that's the case in South. Nothing about, or not everything about your behavior is going to change overnight when you become born again. It's a growth process. But I tell you, what will change overnight is your want to. That changes overnight. The desire to please God with my life. That changes instantaneously. And as I've said billions of times before, where there is no change of desire about how you live your life, how you think, how you act and react, where there is no change of desire, there is no possession of eternal life. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And John makes clear the reason that people need to get this right. Judgment is coming. The Old Testament concludes with that. The New Testament begins with the same theme. He says in verse 10, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And Christ is the thresher. And every tree, therefore, does not, that does not bear good fruit is what? Say it out loud. Cut down and what? Thrown into the fire. The fires of judgment. And that's what happens when there is a failure to repent, a failure to believe the gospel, the good news. There is a cutting down and a casting away, which is a dramatic illusion, of course, to what we believe is hell. The sentence for those who bear no fruit in terms of how they live. 
But you can be delivered from the fires of judgment, and that's why we call it the gospel, the good news. Amen. You don't have to go to hell. I heard E.V. Hill, one of the great, from L.A., one of the great African-American preachers, preach a message one time entitled, I don't want to go to hell. (laughs) I thought it was the greatest thing that I'd ever heard. It was the simplest message I've ever heard. And you don't have to go to hell. And that takes us to a third thing here from John's personality to John's preaching and finally to John's prophecy. Because John is not just a gospel preacher, he's also a biblical prophet. And that he points to something greater than himself that's coming in the future. Now, those Old Testament prophets did the same thing, but when they pointed to the future, they pointed three, four, five hundred years into the future, right? John the Baptist is pointing like weeks into the future, but he's still pointing into the future. So his prophecy is very important. And again, the thing that makes John so great is that he understood his role. And that role was, verse 3, prepare the way of who? Say it out loud. The way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. In other words, provide a straight and unobstructed access to Jesus. That was John's role. Not to point people to himself. He did dress a certain way, preach a certain way, live a certain way in order to attract an audience that he might give the gospel to them, but he knew it wasn't about him. In fact, the apostle John says in the opening verses of his gospel, John 1.8, John was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John captured the people's attention, but then once he'd done that, He was very careful to redirect the attention away from himself toward a greater one who was still to come. This is what we call the messianic prophetic ministry of John the Baptist. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, I've got to hurry this morning because it's time for us to go, but here's the thing. More important than John preaching repentance is John preaching Jesus. And boy, he surely did that. After me, one mightier than I is coming. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to do a greater work. I'm baptizing you in water, but there's going to be one coming soon and very soon who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and he's going to baptize you with fire. Now, both of those in this instance are good things. The baptism of the Holy Spirit means that Jesus is bringing a ministry where by repentance and faith, he moves into the life of the person who expresses repentance and faith in the form of the Holy Spirit. Spirit baptism is not, as it's often taught, something that only a handful of people get to experience sometime way down the road when they're baptized by the Spirit and then demonstrated by the speaking in tongues. That's not spirit baptism. How many of you have been born again by faith in Christ? Would you shout amen? Amen. Then you've been baptized in and with the Holy Spirit. 
Spirit baptism is salvation. Because what happens when you're saved? The Spirit of God seals you. He moves into your life. You're indwelled by the Spirit of God through the ministry of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. If you're saved, you have been baptized by the Spirit because that's what salvation is. And the second thing we see here is fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's just a word that means cleansing, purity. And that's what happens when a person is saved. And Jesus is the only one that can do it. He fills you with himself. And as he moves in, let me tell you, Jesus, he won't live in a dirty house. So he sweeps the sin away. He puts the fire of cleansing to it. And he remakes us from the inside out. But then John gives us a final word, which does allude again to judgment. The fires of judgment. Fire can be a good thing and that can purify you. Fire can be a dreadful thing if it consumes you. And John says, Jesus is coming. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. So he's got an axe in one hand and he's got a winnowing fork in another. And he's going to do a great work of separation when he comes. He'll separate the wheat from the chaff. And this act of separation is all over the New Testament. Whether it be separating the wheat from the chaff, separating the sheep from the goats, separating the, separating the wheat from the weeds, separating the light from the darkness, separating the children of God from the children of the devil. Part of the work of Christ that is coming is a work of separation Two different kinds of people headed to two different eternal destinations. Those who are the wheat, he'll separate and take unto himself. He'll gather the wheat into the barn. That's a statement of heaven. Those who have never repented of their sin and turned in genuine faith are the chaff. And the chaff is relegated to a fire that never goes out. And that, of course, is a reference to hell. You say, well, preacher, you sound like a fire and brimstone preacher. Let me tell you, I'm just trying to sound like John. I'm just trying to sound a lot like Jesus, who preached exactly the same thing. But John the Baptist, even though he talked about the end time and what would happen after salvation, was fundamentally a grace-driven preacher, and you know why? Because he gave people a way out. There's a way out. That's grace. You don't have to go to hell. John was offering people a way to live eternally. Here's how you can truly know God. And John did it by calling people to repentance and pointing them to Jesus as their only hope. Until that time, he would do it in a final way. At the end of the first chapter of John, when the Baptist pointed that bony finger up over the horizon at a man walking toward him, and finally said, until he faded off the scene, behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. I'm just here to say this morning, anybody that does that faithfully is always a great man, always a great woman in the eyes of God. John, bottom line, preached about four things. Repent of your sin, be baptized as a sign and testimony of your faith, then live a fruitful life that's obvious for others to see. And as you do it, point others to Christ intentionally with your works and with your words. He did that. And that's what made him the greatest man who ever lived. And by the way, any of us who do that today will always be considered great in the eyes of God. This is his eternal word. And all God's people said, amen.